This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, reading verses 10 through 12. And as you make your way there, I wonder, when was the last time that you saw something that was stunningly beautiful? Something that just totally took your heart away. Guys, I'm giving you a real easy softball here for you to start elbowing your wife and like making eyes at her right now, okay? I saw a couple of you did that. Good job. You got the, you got the lesson. Free romance lessons for all of you. For the guys who didn't do that, uh, we do have a marriage class coming up in the fall. And with, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but seriously, when was the last time that you were just like, wow, wow, that's incredible. We love those moments, don't we? We love to be amazed. Whether it's a beautiful piece of art or music, maybe it's some grand vista like the Grand Canyon, maybe it's an athlete doing something amazing. I think about Joel Embiid hitting that three-pointer against the Raptors. That was one of the most recent times where I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, Then being the Philadelphia fan, I should have known not to get excited because God just wants to continue to humble our city, and and that was not going to go far. But, but some of those moments where we can be the most happy, aren't they when we are, when we're the most amazed? Well, this morning, as we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, we're going to read a passage of Scripture that speaks about something that is so awesome, so amazing, that it says even angels long to look at it. The angels were created before us, before us and so they were with God as he created this earth. Right now, these angels dwell with God in the presence of his holiness. I think it's safe to say that angels have seen some amazing things. But in our passage today, we're going to see that there's something into which angels long to stare. What could possibly arrest their attention? Well, I believe it is what is meant to arrest our attention this morning, what is meant to not only arrest our attention, but to fill up our emotions, and not only fill up our emotions, but to bring direction to the purpose of our lives. And so before reading God's word, I just want to ask that we have another word of prayer, and pray and ask God for his help, so that our hearts will be open to being amazed. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? God, as we come to you in your holy word, I pray that you would help us to see what you are saying. We're about to hear your word being read, and then we're about to hear it being preached, but I pray that you would do something more than just hearing, that you would turn what we hear into what we see by faith, and that what we see would take our breath away, that what we see would capture our hearts, that what we see would direct our lives. God, we want to encounter you this morning. That's why we're here. And so, Lord, I pray you be with us now in this holy moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's read together in God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. 1 Peter chapter 1, reading through verse 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what 
person or time, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Praise God for his holy word. May be with us now through the preaching of it. D- did you see what Peter says that angels long to look at? Well, it's what verse 10 tells us. It's concerning this salvation, the salvation that is yours by grace. The thing that is so dazzling, so amazing, so awesome that angels can't bear to turn their eyes away from it is God's good news of salvation by grace. And not just salvation in general, but four times in these verses did you notice that personal pronouns were used. This is the grace that is yours and you and you and you. Peter's drawing their attention and God this morning wants to draw our attention to the personal reality of what it means for you to be saved by grace. I think it's not a mistake that God has us here in this text on this morning. As we consider the fearful and terrible things that took place in our city last night, and the things that have been taking place in increasing ways around our country, I believe God wants to steady our souls by drawing our attention again to the safety, security, and glory of what it means to be saved by grace. I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, Exiles, which is the theme of this whole letter, Exiles, a stunning salvation. A stunning salvation. Here's the big idea that I believe these verses are preaching to us. We are saved by grace to live for God's praise. We are saved by grace to live for God's praise. We have three points this morning. Point number one, we are saved. Point number two, by grace. Point number three, to live for God's praise. Let's look at each of those in their turn. First, we are saved. I had a professor once who asked me, Jeff, you're always talking about salvation, but can't there be many forms of salvation? She said, I found salvation through my research, and what I'm doing is contributing to making this world a better place. Now, she was an English professor who studied literature, which I love, but I'm not exactly sure how that contributes to the world being a better place, but, you know, I appreciate her heart in that, right? She generally was someone who was seeking to do good. But but what I told her is that when we're talking about salvation, we're talking about two very, very different things. By salvation, I'm not talking about some kind of feeling of satisfaction or some kind of noble purpose in life. And that's not what Peter is talking about here. No, he says concerning this salvation, That word this is meant to speak to a particular kind of salvation that he is referring to. It's the salvation that he talked about in verse 9. It says, verse 9, we are obtaining the outcome of our faith. What's the outcome of our faith? It's the salvation of our souls. And this theme of salvation is something that Peter is going to really unpack throughout his whole letter. He's going to say again and again and again what it means to be saved and show, show us it from various angles. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he's going to tell us that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, 
for by his wounds you were healed. Jesus bore our sins because we need to be saved from our sins. Our sins are like a terminal disease, slowly killing us forever. And it's only the wounds of Christ that can heal us. We need to be saved from the disease of our sin. But, but we only, sin is not only something that we need to be healed from, it, it's also a guilt that we bear that deserves judgment. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, is it, time, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Right? We need to be saved from God's judgment. Do we really think that we could stand before the judgment seat of God and hope to give some kind of account for our life? I mean, regardless of how much good we do, could we really over expect God to overlook our wrongs? And would we want to serve and worship a God who would overlook wrongs? What kind of God would that be? Think about the evils that occur in this world. Do we want a God who turns a blind eye to evil? No, there's something deep in us that cries out for justice. And yet if God is just, then he must equally be just. If he punishes wrong, then he can't just do that to some people. And so the reality is we're all in trouble. Because while we might not commit atrocities, none of us can plead a perfect life. We need to be saved from God's judgment. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter writes this, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ died for our sins because we need to be saved from the consequence of our sins. They separate us from God. The judgment of God is eternal damnation, separation, being cast out of his holy presence. But Christ died for our sins so that our judgment could be paid for by him and we could be brought home to God. We need to be saved from sin's disease. We need to be saved from sin's judgment. And we need to be saved from our enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter will talk about this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil is a liar and a murderer and is trying to destroy as many human beings as possible because he hates God and so he hates us who bear God's image. And he's like a lion which means that he is far more powerful than you or I. And so we need someone to save us from him. And this is what Jesus Christ does. Jesus saves us from Satan by taking away the greatest power that Satan has, which is the power of accusation. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, there is nothing that Satan can use to accuse us and trap us of anymore. Whatever sin he might come and accuse us of, you're like, yes, I might do that. I might have done that, and I might still even do that. But Christ already paid for that. And so you can't threaten me, Satan, with something that Jesus has already removed. And through Christ's resurrection, 
Jesus' reversal of death has started a great reversal that one day will be complete with Satan being thrown into God's lake of fire of judgment, Revelation chapter 19. And so when Peter writes concerning the salvation, he is saying the salvation of being saved from the sickness of sin, the judgment of sin, and the destruction of the devil. This is the salvation that comes in Jesus. As Jesus heals our guilt, as he removes our judgment, and as Jesus destroys the destroyer. But salvation is not just what we need to be saved from. No, Peter's also going to be directing our attention to what we have been saved for. It's not just what we're saved from, but it's what we're saved for. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, Peter says, You were continually straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Salvation means being brought home to a loving shepherd who cares for us, who, who will guard us and lead us to still waters and green pastures in his place of peace. We've already seen in chapter 1 verse 4 that we're saved for an unfading inheritance of glory with Christ. We are saved not for more shame, we are saved for greater honor. We are saved so that there will be no more disgrace or humiliation, but the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're going to be shown to be the glorious children of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, we see that God has called us to this. The God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Friends, we are saved to share in the glory of Christ, and the result is going to be everlasting joy. Because 1 Peter 4.13 says, To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, what's going to happen? You may rejoice with exaltation. Friends, this is what we are saved for. We are saved for a personal relationship with Christ, our shepherd. A participation in the eternal glory of God and a joy and exaltation as eternal as the glory of Christ. Concerning this salvation, we are saved. But how? How how, how do we come to be saved? Well, concerning salvation, verse 10 still, that is yours by grace. You're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. The salvation that Peter's talking about here is the salvation that Peter says the whole Bible is about. Because he talks about how the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Now, when Peter's saying that the prophets prophesy about this, he's not talking about a narrow set of Old Testament authors who made predictions about the future. No, you need to understand that in the Jewish world, and for the Jewish readers, who Peter, who was, who was writing this, The whole testament was considered prophecy. Every person who wrote scripture was considered a prophet because they were not writing what they had received in and of themselves. They were not just writing their own ideas. They were writing as they had been inspired by God. And so even the history was prophetic history. It was revelation of God and who he is. And so from Moses, the first prophet who wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, to Malachi, the last prophet to write before the coming of Christ, From Moses to Malachi, what Peter's telling us is that every prophet who wrote every page of Scripture from Moses to Malachi and every page in between was writing really about one thing. 
They're writing about salvation that was to be ours by grace. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. As you are reading your Bibles and trying to understand what's going on in the Old Testament, we are not appropriately understanding what the Old Testament is saying if we're not seeing how it points to salvation by grace in Christ. We see this right in the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam to not eat of the forbidden fruit. God says, from the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam does not stop his wife Eve from eating that fruit, but instead sits by idly watching her and then joins into that sin with her and takes a bite himself. And so now God comes. But if you know that story, you know God's first action is not to bring the death that he promised. God's first action is to call out to them, where are you? Now, I think God knew where they were. Like, I don't think hiding behind leaves is going to keep you away from the stare of the one who made the leaves. God knew where they were. But he was calling out to them as an invitation for them to come to See, because God is just, he does bring judgment for their sin. They are cast out of the garden and they would eventually die. But they don't begin by receiving judgment. They instead receive grace. God calls them to come to him. And what does he do? God doesn't kill them. God kills an animal to clothe them because they feel ashamed. God kills another so that they can be, have their shame removed and covered. Even though, and it goes on, even though the, the, this act of sin, Adam had handed this world over to Satan, God promises that one day someone's going to come. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Someone's going to come who's going to crush Satan once and for all and bring about salvation and a new creation. Adam and Eve had done nothing to deserve that. The only thing they deserved was to receive what God had promised. To receive the judgment for their sin, to receive death. But instead of treating them as they deserve, God promised goodness to them. He promised his loving kindness for them. He promised them salvation. And so in the very first book of the Bible, in the very first story of the Bible, we see this theme of salvation by grace being established. See, grace is God saving people, not on the basis of who they are, but out of the goodness of who he is. Grace is not God treating us conditionally based upon what we do or God looking through the quarters of time to see what we would do. Grace is God showing us the goodness of his salvation unconditionally to having anything to do with us. Grace is God's free choice to be good to sinful people. And line after line after line in the Old Testament we see this is all about one big promise of God's salvation by grace. We see salvation by grace in Noah's Ark, where instead of wiping out the whole world, God graciously saves a family and then promises with a rainbow in the sky to never again destroy the world until the end of time. In grace, God calls a man named Abram who is living in the sun-worshipping pagan land of Ur. And God reveals himself to Abram and says that through him, God is going to bring blessing to the entire world. And God changes Abram's name to Abraham, the father of multitudes. 
We see grace in God's rescuing of the Israelite people from the land of Egypt. They had forgotten God in that place, but God had not forgotten them. And so he raises up Moses to bring them out of their slavery to Egypt. And the Egyptian army pursues them. And they're stuck because they have this impassable Red Sea in front of them. Nowhere to go. Annihilation seeming to be the only option. But then God parts the Red Sea and they walk through safely. And the Egyptian army pursues them. And God brings down the water, crushing their enemies completely. And these Israelite people are delivered from the most powerful nation that the world has ever seen without their need to lift a finger. They're saved not by their actions. They're saved by God's grace. And then God graciously gives them his laws to live by. And yes, giving them his laws is his grace. God is not an uninterested, uninvolved, permissive parent who doesn't care if his beloved run after their own destruction. No, he seeks to intervene by placing their good rules in his life, their lives. That that is grace. And it is grace that he wrote into his law a way to be forgiven when his law is broken. And through every sacrifice that we see prescribed in the book of Leviticus, through every blood being shed that was not the sinner's blood, but was the blood of a bull or a goat or a ram or a bird, we are seeing this is grace, this is grace, this is grace, this is grace. The Israelite king, David, was told that God's grace would come through another king being brought through his line who would reign forever and make God's peace spread across all the earth. God's grace was going to come. And God's grace was going to come in a person. This person was called the Messiah, the Anointed One, what the Greeks would call the Christ. And every writer in the Old Testament was writing about salvation by grace through Christ. So much so that, that in verse 11, Peter tells us that it's the Spirit of Christ that was in them. That was speaking these things. Now, he is speaking about the Holy Spirit. But what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is all about showing us Christ. That's what's happening in the Old Testament. There is one who's going to come. There is a Christ who's going to come. And he's going to come, how? Well, they talked about through the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. See, see every writer in the Old Testament was writing about salvation by grace through Christ who would save by suffering and by glory. So again, in Genesis, we see in the story of Adam and Eve, animals had to be killed, killed. there is suffering, so that the shame of Adam and Eve could be covered, that is glory. God says that Christ will crush Satan, that is glory, will also be bruised by Satan, that is suffering. In the law, we see sins being forgiven, that is glory, but only because another's blood that was shed, that is suffering. Prophet Isaiah talked about the anointed one of God who would bring God's day of glory to earth, who also would suffer in such a way that he would be beaten beyond resemblance of a man, that he'd be crushed for our sins, bruised for our wrongs, killed to pay for the, our punishment of death. And so prophets, they, they prophesied about the glories, and they prophesied about the sufferings of this coming Christ. And as they did so, we're told they wondered, when will we see this suffering servant and anointed king? And when will we see this gracious salvation that God is promising? They, they're wondering when they would see it. 
but they didn't get an answer. They just kept writing what God was telling them to say, but they were not writing about something that they would fully come to know or see. But Peter says they did that because they were shown they were serving not themselves. Peter says they were serving you. Peter says God was moving in history through them to speak to you. And that you is meant to be inclusive of us because like the readers of 1 Peter, we get to see now what all the Old Testament prophets were speaking about. We get to see the grace promised in the Old Testament has now become embodied in the New Testament when Jesus came and said what? I am the Christ. And so what Peter is telling us is that really the whole Testament is meant to be read like a treasure map leading us to Jesus. And this is why we're told that Jesus, when he came, he did many things. He healed diseases, did miracles, walked on water, even raised the dead. But, but the core of his message, this is what he said that he was about. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Listen to the echoes of the Old Testament. From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day, be raised. Jesus spoke about his suffering and his glory. Or in other words, Jesus spoke about being the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had been talking about. He spoke about his suffering. Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. He knew why the Father had sent him. He kept saying he must go and suffer. Notice it says, he says he must go. His suffering was an intentional choice to fulfill the grace that God had promised through the prophets. And notice that the prophecies about this suffering of Christ as they came to the, the, the Old Testament prophets, they, 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 again, they're speaking to us about the spirit of Christ. And so this is what this means. This means that Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God in heaven, he has been contemplating his suffering and his death for us for beyond a time that we could possibly imagine. He's been thinking about this for millennia. I love how Pastor John Piper writes about this when he says, as far back as our plan of salvation reaches in the mind of God, so far back has Christ been willing and ready to give himself for our sins. You were not loved just for a bloody moment of sacrifice in history. You have been loved for endless ages in the eternal plan of the Father and the Son to save sinners who trust in Friends, you have been loved for endless ages. The Father had this plan to send the Son, and the Son was in full agreement with the Father to come and die in our place. And so for endless ages, the horrors of our hell has been a burden that Jesus has borne on his heart, knowing that one day he would come and would suffer for what we deserve to experience for eternity. No wonder that the night before Jesus died, 
as he contemplated what was about to happen the next day. The gospel writer Luke tells us the capillaries in his face burst under the stress and he sweated drops of blood. Because it wasn't just about a day for Jesus. It was about what he had been thinking about for endless ages. The suffering that he had been anticipating for a longer time than our finite minds can comprehend. That suffering had now come. Jesus was going to come and he was going to suffer for us. Which is all by grace. Jesus did not come to die for good people. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to die for sinful people. That is grace. He suffered by grace. He was then gloriously resurrected by grace. Jesus suffered and died, but he did not stay dead. No, the Father rose him from death so that the grace purchased by Jesus on the cross could now be vindicated through his resurrection. The cross is Jesus' payment for our sin. The empty grave is proof that Jesus has paid for our sin. And it's all by grace. There is nothing that we've done to contribute to this salvation. Nothing that we could do to possibly ever deserve the salvation. It's all by grace. And God's grace not only makes a way of salvation possible, but God's grace makes sure that we actually get to experience it. I can go to a car show and be blown away at some amazing cars that I could never afford. I can be amazed by them, but I couldn't experience them. Why? Because I haven't earned enough money to buy something that incredible. Friends, as we see the salvation of grace in Christ, yes, we are seeing something incredible, but God is not just leaving it as something that we see. No, he knows that there's nothing that we could ever do to purchase it, and so he comes and he calls us to faith in him. He doesn't just show us the car, he writes our name on the title. This stunning salvation is not just something we get to look at from a distance, but something that by grace God allows us to experience. And we're told in verse 12 how. How do we experience this? We're said these things have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Friends, if you're here and you have placed your faith in Jesus, that is because God saw fit in his divine grace to not keep his grace hidden from you. But he has sent his Holy Spirit to preach it to you. I don't know where or how you first heard the gospel, but behind every flesh and blood preacher of the good news is the Holy Spirit empowering them to share the good news. Maybe it was your parents, or maybe it was a friend, or a coworker, or a pastor, or maybe it was just opening this book. I don't know what God used to speak to you, but let's be very clear, it was God who was speaking to you. And he does not just speak, but when God speaks, his voice can raise the dead. He doesn't just give us an option. He calls us to faith in him, and he gives us new life. And it's all by his grace. If you are here and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, friend, I believe you are here by God's grace. God has you listening to this, and it is not by chance. He has you listening to this because he wants you to come to faith in him. Respond to his grace today. Friends, it is, it is grace that doesn't just make a way for us, our salvation, but as verse 
Remember what verse 3 said in chapter 1? He causes us to be born again. It's grace that makes a way for us to be saved. And it's his grace that makes sure that we get saved. He causes us to be born again through faith in him. Charles Spurgeon, who's a 19th century preacher that we often quote here at Christ Church. He writes about how one day he was listening to a sermon and he wasn't agreeing with what the pastor was saying. So he was checking out. Um, and his mind starts to drift. And then this is what he, he said that he starts to think about. He says, one night when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the, past, the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I've not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Friends, God's love is so incredible that he is not just only make a way for us to hear about the glories and the sufferings of the Christ. No, by grace, he stops us in our tracks. As we are running away from him, he puts us either in families or in situations or around people where we can hear the gospel and by grace respond to it. We are saved by grace. And this is what we must repeat to ourselves again and again. But I fail so often. You are saved by grace. But I can be so cold-hearted to God. You are saved by grace. But I don't do enough good things for God. You are saved by grace. But I'm so often fearful and faithless. You are saved by grace. But I can so often be preoccupied with things other than God. You are saved by grace. But this world can be such a fearful and scary place. You, you have been saved from it by grace. You see, to every anxiety and stress and fear and guilt and shame and doubt and burden, God's word proclaims to us again and again, you are saved by grace. And this is why the angels are lost in wonder. It's not because they see good people getting into heaven but because they see sinners being saved by grace. I can just imagine them being, oh, look, there's another one. Can grace really do something like that? Oh, wow, look at this person. They, they truly must be beyond God's reach. Wow, do you see how God saves them? And over and over again, they're just amazed, and they can't turn their gaze away. They're looking at the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people, and they just stare into this wonder of grace. How much more so should we who get to experience such an incredible thing? We have been saved by grace for a glorious purpose. We've been saved by grace 
to live for God's praise. This is where we're landing the plane today. As I've noticed in previous weeks, verses 3 through 12 is actually one long run-on sentence in the original Greek that Peter was writing this in. And so really everything in verses 3 through 12 is meant to point us back to how he starts this passage in verse 3 when he says, blessed be God, or in other words, praise be to God. Why has God saved you? He saved you for the sake of his praise. Which is both really good news and gives us a very clear purpose. It's good news because God saving us for his praise is the most self-giving thing that God could possibly ever do for us. In C.S. Lewis's reflection on the Psalms, he writes about how the Psalms, God constantly invites us to praise him. And he actually used to really struggle with this. I mean, God seems really egotistical and maniacal. Like, why is he always calling us for praise him? But then, but then he thought about it a little bit more. And this is where he writes, we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of an unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent. Because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Right? What he's drawn our attention to is that God's pursuit of our praise is not some kind of weak-willed, self-seeking egotism. But is the epitome of self-giving love. Because the greatest thing that we can experience in life, the greatest satisfaction that we can have, is knowing and enjoying God. And in order to know and enjoy God, that's something that we have to be able to express. Our joy in God is not going to be complete until it is expressed in praise to God. Therefore, God's efforts to elicit our worship is the most loving thing that he could possibly do for us because it is what will lead to our most true joy. And so we're saved by grace. We're saved in such a way that there's nothing we can praise in ourselves. We didn't figure anything out that someone else didn't. We didn't come to faith in a way that someone else didn't. There's nothing that I can look to in myself to say this came from me. God saves us totally by his grace. Why? So that our praise has to completely go to him. And he does that so that our joy might be complete in him. This is good news. And this gives us a very clear purpose for our lives. God saved us by his grace to live for his praise. God wants us to praise him in every aspect of who we are. Praising God is not just something we do when we sing some songs on a Sunday. Praising God is meant to be what orients our life Monday through Saturday. Every part of what we do, every part of what you do, is meant to be live for the praise of God. How you interact with other people on the street is meant to be for the praise of God. We are, we are to be kind and loving towards others, not because we're good people, nor because other people deserve it, but because our kindness to others glorify God. And he is worthy of our praise. We should work hard and with integrity and excellence. Because, friends, you do not ultimately work for any boss or any company. You work to worship God. We should give generously of our finances to the work of the Lord, trusting in him to provide for all our needs. Because our money is not just about us, but given by us 
from God to worship him. We should flee temptations to sin, not just because sin leads to death, but because we want to pursue the glory of, joyfi- of glorifying God by, by joyously living for his righteous ways. We should want to praise God by not just keeping him to ourselves, but sharing about him with others. I love my wife and family, and when I tell others how great they are, I honor them. Part of how we honor God is when we speak openly about our affections for God and how great we think he is. See, part of what Peter is drawing our attention to here is that as we navigate life in this world as exiles, in this world that's not our home, we are to do so full of wonder and amazement at the fact that we've been saved by grace. And therefore, every aspect of our lives is to be lived with the desire to give God the praise for our salvation by grace. And so here's really how I think we should apply these verses. Here's here's a take-home question to think about and to chew on. How is my life displaying the greatness of God? How is my life displaying the greatness of God? How is my life not just small and about me? How is my life big and glorious and about God? Am I chasing comfort, convenience, just going through the motions, living by the same priorities as everyone else around me? Or has my heart been captured by wonder? Am I stunned and dazzled by what God has done and so who he is and living for him is the deepest desire in my heart? Another way to think of this is, where are places in my life where I'm living for the praise of me instead of the praise of him? Friends, these verses are inviting us to the most stunning vista that we could ever see. Our salvation by grace. And angels long to look at this magnificent work. How much more so should our hearts be drawn to God's praise because we have been able to experience this magnificent work. And so Christ Church, we're saved by grace to live for God's praise. To him be the glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer.